Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you're listening to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast, recorded live on Clubhouse with special guest this week, Andy McMillan, CEO of User Testing. Uh, Andy, thanks for joining us, and welcome to S slash Clubhouse Room. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Hi, Andy. Nice, nice to, to meet you. Great to have you on board. Nice to meet you. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, Andy, you know the format. I guess you listened to our episode with Brett Queener, which if you've not listened to, guys, it was a great one, as was one with Stephanie McReynolds, a couple of my favorites. I like the Workday CTO one, too. I can't remember his name, Thomas, but that was a cool uh, one. David Clark. Yeah. Yeah, like him. So this is an exciting session today. Andy is a, a CEO, uh, been CEO of two companies, and he's run product management and a couple of others. Um, and we're going to talk today about a lot of things related to product, but I think the centerpiece of the conversation will be Andy's framework uh, for hiring and building PM teams. Before we jump in, I'll remind you the red ball in the room title means the room is being recorded, uh, and we do release this as a podcast. Um, so Andy, I'd love for you, if you'd love to do just a quick self-intro uh, before we jump into the material, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so Andy McMillan, my background uh, is, as you said, in, in product management. Um, I actually started my career as a Java developer. So I was actually a programmer uh, writing pretty mediocre uh, software programs early in my career and uh, got into product management at a little company called Stellant, which was a content management business uh, based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we were acquired by Oracle. And I kind of made my way up through the product management ranks at, at Oracle and their middleware group and uh, spent some time at Salesforce. Uh, when I left Salesforce, my last role there was as the product group COO, which was sort of working across all the cross-functional things in the product management area across the different clouds and decided to go be a CEO. Uh, spent uh, two and a half years at Acton Software out of uh, Portland in the marketing automation space and then now at, uh, at user testing for the last three years. Awesome. It's uh, great to have you on the show. But <clears throat> before we jump into the Scheduled material, I would love to ask two, two kind of warm-up questions, um, which is in, in some of the questions, Andy, as you know, I put in the blog, and you're kind of expecting them, and some of them are surprises and curveballs. Uh, and in addition, by the way, if you're in the audience, at some point we'll open it up, and or actually at any point, feel free to raise your hand, and we'll, we'll invite you up for a question. But the first question I have is uh, two parts, I guess. I'll just put both parts out there. One is, what did you learn at Oracle about product management? And then same question, what did you learn at Salesforce? I think the thing I learned at Oracle was really a, was scale uh, and distribution. So, you know, being at a small company, you know, Stellant was, I don't know, 100 million, maybe a little more in, uh, in annual revenue. And that was the old perpetual license annual revenue, right? So not ARR. Uh, and we had our sales team and it was, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 salespeople or something. And then you go into Oracle and there's just an army of salespeople. And I'll never forget uh, one of the product marketers there told me, you know, you need to think of our channel as being like those old vacuum tubes from the bank that your parents used to use when they would pull up to the drive-thru and like put the canister in. It only works because the canister is exactly the right size. And so that's the way you need to think of our field. Like they sell lots and lots of stuff. If you can make it exactly the right size, they will sell tons of it. But if it doesn't fit what they're trying to do, they're just not going to spend the time on it and you will sell almost none of it. And so Oracle really taught me how to get sort of scale and distribution and think about the field team as a, like a vehicle that you're trying to use as a B2B product manager. Uh, and I think at Salesforce, it was um, in some ways sort of the opposite. It's such a product and innovation-led company. It was sort of amazing to watch the way uh, from Mark, uh, in, you know, including people like Brett, who I worked for when I first joined, um, thought about innovative product. It really wasn't field-led. It was where's the market going? And I think Mark's pretty famous for being sort of way out in front of where the puck is going and rallying almost a disproportionate amount of resources to go do that. 
and doing it really successfully. So there's sort of two very different models in how you think about what you're doing as a PM, but I thought both were really useful. Yeah, I would say I got a, a couple of comments on your comments because it's super interesting. One, the, the the Oracle thing basically make make a square peg to go fit into a square hole, right? Because <laughs> the hole is square, and, and I totally agree. In an organization like that, it needs to be sellable. It needs to be packaged for sales, priced for sales, you know, trained for sales. Um, so, so great insight. I, I do think since we have a lot of early stage people in our audience, um, it, always to remind early stage product people that enterprise software, I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but it's fundamentally a sales and distribution led game. <laughs> like, yes, product's more important now, product led growth, I get all that. But still, especially at large companies, when you've got these massive sales forces, you need to feed them something they can digest. Um, the second point about Salesforce, I, I think, like, as you, as you know, we were, I was there when you were for, uh, in 2012. And uh, I'll just take Chatter as an example. I think one day people came to work and there were 100 developers on Chatter or 100 engineers on Chatter. Was it 100 developers? 100 engineers? It might have been 100 developers. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and I think it was so many people make, basically, I want to differentiate between type one and type two error. Type, type one error is get the shiny new thing and put three people on it and never get anywhere. And Bettyoff is 100% type two. Like if, if it would have taken 30, he'll put 100 just to be sure. Um, and I actually think it's quite, it's, it's, it's a quite a genius thing and quite a good pattern. He, he over-invests. I think can't remember, you said it much more diplomatically than I did, but, but, but he definitely, oh, yeah, disproportionately, I think was your word, invests in these new things. Yeah, it is really uh, amazing and compelling to be a part of. And it's sort of interesting the way it becomes part of the culture. Um, I used to tell folks that were joining Salesforce, you know, just to be clear, we don't do change management. We just do change. So if you need your change managed, this is not the right place for you. Um, But it was true because you would just come in one day and, and, you know, Mark, and it wasn't just on his own. I mean, he'd have his executive team aligned, but Mark would, you know, like, hey, we're doing chatter now. You know, half your team has now been reallocated over to chatter. And you had to be able to go, yeah, okay, like, I'll figure that out. (laughs) And it was pretty amazing, the results. I mean, it's hard to argue with the outcomes. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think to, to, I think we look at it the same way, which is to me the, the kind of the meta look is, is actually the more important one. And I, I love your line about change, but 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 like a lot of organizations, as, as they get built, they get styled, and, and people get entitled and kind of sticky, and everything gets inflexible. And, and I think the, the the root cause of why they're able to innovate is this kind of change change on a dime sort of culture. Um, and, and I think I advise CEOs as they build companies to just go change stuff as a regular kind of habit so people get used to it. Because otherwise, if you're not careful, if you just do the same thing with the same VPs, the same processes for three or four years, good luck trying to change it later. Yeah, there's that great quote. Um, I used to think it was a um, Drucker quote, but I might be mistaken, which is uh, great companies don't end up going out of business for doing the wrong thing. They go out of business for doing what was the right thing for too long. And I think that's really true. Great quote. I've not heard that. I wish um, I knew who said it. I think it is a Drucker quote. It's okay. like one of his. We could just pretend it's Drucker either way. No, no, it, 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 it's a good one. It's um, either Drucker or Mark Twain or Winston Churchill. It's one of the three. <laughs> <laughs> the three sources always quoted. Uh, it's funny. Um, so, uh, Thomas, did you have any questions on that part before we jump in? Yeah, just just always you know, coming from my background at SAP, the thinking about the your own sales force as a as an important customer is a good thing to do because if you always the metaphor that I sometimes use is that. Um, uh, as a golfing one, that in golf there are 14 clubs in the bag, right? And um, you know, when you're at a software company, a big software company, they've probably got 300 golf clubs. And so how do you get your 
your uh, uh, your product to be one of the 14 that's in the salesperson's bag when they go and see the customer. And then the next step is, you know, how do you make your um, uh, how do you make your product to be the be the trusty seven iron that they take out uh, that they take out all the time, and and not be the one iron that lurks in the in the unused in the bag. So you know, thinking about about your own sales channel, how is your how is your product going to be communicated by them, and uh, how they're going to feel comfortable selling it and positioning it and so on? I think is is really important. And a lot of product managers who come from a startup that's acquired by a big software company really don't get uh, the power uh, of the the big sales machines like an SAP or an Oracle. Um, but you do have to find a way of making your 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 uh, products understandable and aligned with uh, aligned with those sales forces, and that's that's often not as easy as it may seem. Yeah, that's right, and I, I like the analogy too because it's the clubs those salespeople pick. Their their livelihoods depend on it, right? I mean, that's the thing you really got to remember. These are folks that you know missed two quarters, and it was nice knowing you, right? We'll see how the next guy does. Exactly. So trying to convince them as a product manager, hey, this is this really interesting and innovative idea. I know it doesn't completely make sense to you yet, but it's really cool. You just have to go find a different buyer who you're not speaking to and try to convince them that this, I mean, yeah. the, you know, there's yeah. their, their livelihoods and, at yeah. stake. And, and by the way, you've got, a, you've, got a six million, you've got a six million quota and, um, you know, this is a hundred ARR product. So good luck. Good luck with that. You know? yeah, exactly. Yeah. So quick more story on my end, back to the, I'll call it the homogeneity argument. Um, at one time at Business Objects, we licensed a third-party product, so we were OEMing it. We relabeled it as our own. Uh, and someone in finance figured out that we were paying a 30% royalty on it. And, and normally, particularly in enterprise, you know, on-premises software, gross margins were 98%. So, so finance insisted that we compensate sales on gross margin, not revenue, right? Which was like attaching a third thumb to the outside of the product, and, and the sales wouldn't touch it. Right, it was like there's there's 17 red clubs in the bag and there's one blue one, <laughs> and they're like they wanted nothing. It, it, the product was literally doomed at birth by finance because they changed the commission structure on it. And it was all well intentioned, but but it's back to this point of you need to feed them something they can digest and, and want to sell for all the reasons you guys state. Yeah, and the and the flip side is true. I, the largest deal I did while I was at Oracle, uh, we sold our you know again selling was a content management platform. We sold it to one of the larger Siebel shops in Europe, which is a, another Oracle product. Uh, and essentially they had outused the capacity of what was called Siebel files, which was the underlying file management tool they had. And so I flew out to Europe. I walked in, I had three slides. My three slides were uh, the magic quadrant showing that we were the leader, the press release slide showing that Oracle had acquired us. And the third slide was the price. And they said, oh, okay, yeah, we'll buy that. And then what's the next item on the agenda? So I spoke for like three minutes, but it was, again, it was just, oh, this is the Oracle solution to the problem I now have sold by the same sales guy. I'll buy it. And I just think that's thinking about your distribution channel versus your competitive position. Yeah, because if you'd gone in and done deep product dive, deep comparisons, you might have created your own objections, right? <laughs> yeah, they said, wow, this is complicated. You guys built a really technical product. <laughs> Literally. Right? Literally. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't oversell the clothes or whatever the expression yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. Um, I always talk about like a menu and the recipe. And, and so often, you know, product people, they, they, they love the they love the recipe of what they're building, you know. And so they go into the meeting and they, they, they talk about how and details about exactly how the product's made where actually all the customer wants is to is to see the menu yeah so great story there 
Awesome. So, um, Andy, what, one last kind of semi-warm-up question. Um, tell us about user testing, I mean, including not only what you do, but, but what, uh, what made you join? What got you interested? Yeah, thank you. I, uh, it's a fascinating product area. So, you know, I'm not the founder. I joined three years ago. The company was started uh, over 12 years ago. Um, so I, I joined after getting to know the founder and, uh, you know, he was looking to go kind of spend more time with with family and, and do those kinds of things. So it was a good um, kind of healthy handoff in the business. Um, it's a fascinating product. It is essentially a tool that lets you as a product manager, as a designer, as a marketer, um, essentially um, ask a set of participants to go through uh, a set of steps and show you what it's like to be a user or consumer of a product or an experience. So if you're you know, Starbucks and you're rolling out something new in your mobile app, you can go to user testing and say, hey, user testing, I want uh, 10 people that live in the Midwest that uh, don't drink Starbucks more than three times a week to go through our app, do these 10 things, record their screens on their mobile device, record their voice, have them narrate their experience out loud and tell us what they think. And then we use technology to do that extremely quickly. So a vast majority of the tests on our platform come back in a couple of hours. So you could imagine, the, in my example, the Starbucks design team, you know, they could maybe sketch that up in Figma, put that prototype out in front of these 10 people, and by lunchtime, uh, be actually watching 10 people navigate through their Figma designs, you know, narrating their experience, telling them what they like and don't like about the proposed changes. So it's essentially, from a product management perspective, the ability to get customer or prospect feedback, kind of qualitative rich feedback uh, in, you know, darn near real time. Uh, which is really important with kind of agile software development being the way it is. You can't really go commission a study or an ad agency or a focus group to go try to do this stuff when you're shipping code every two weeks. So that's what the product does and, and what I think is such a, an interesting um, kind of white space, if you will, when you think about all the product analytics and data that we operate from now as product managers. But what we don't do enough of is actually watch people use the product. And we all experience this as, as consumers, right? I mean, how many apps do we use? We say, boy, has anybody ever used this app or watched anybody use this app. And so that's the problem we're trying to solve. Um, I joined because um, I was really looking for my my next activity. We, we sort of consolidated Acton down into Portland. I don't live in Portland. I live in the Bay Area. And so the CFO lives in Portland. She's great. We decided she'd run the company uh, as we consolidated down into Portland. And uh, I met the founder through a, uh, a mutual acquaintance. And when he just described what the product does, I remember my first reaction being, that seems like a really obvious solution. And then realizing as a product manager, I'd been doing my job for 20 years and never done this before. And I thought that seems like a big miss. And then my next thought was, well, there must be tons of companies doing this. It's so obvious. And it's really just user testing that does it kind of at substantial scale. So I thought that was really, in many ways, a great example of product market fit where something seems obvious in retrospect, but I didn't know it was obvious until someone said, hey, maybe you should see people consume the things you build. So it's been really, really fun to be a part of. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, personally, I think you're in the right place at the right time too, right? Like all industry trends, in my opinion, are pushing your direction. Um, out of curiosity, was the initial uptake, how many enterprise software companies use this versus consumer versus brands trying to build apps? What, what does your customer base look like? Um, and, and specifically, because I'm an enterprise software guy, like are enterprises doing this enough? Yeah, it's, it's a great question when you think about the history of the company. And, and part of the founder transition was um, the, the business was started as a website you went to and you would pay uh, you know, a small amount of money, 30, 40, 50 bucks, and you would get one video back from someone who was not your mom, your partner, your best friend. Like somebody else would tell you 
what the experience was like that you had built. And as the company grew, what they found was more and more enterprise customers started using the product, not just individual users. And the enterprise product in a kind of typical founder fashion was born one day when uh, a, a VP at a big tech company called up and said, hey, I have end of quarter budget. I need to spend it today. Can I buy $40,000 worth of videos? Our founder being a good founder said, absolutely. We have an enterprise plan. It's $40,000. I have no idea what's in it yet. Uh, and so that's kind of how we became an enterprise software company. Um, today, uh, we, you know, we put out a press release last September when we crossed $100 million in ARR. Um, you know, a, a, a lot of those are enterprise customers. Um, you know, a lot of, I think half the top hundred brands in the world, according to Forbes are, are user testing customers, uh, and doing it at very substantial scale where they're testing, you know, every aspect of things that they're building and releasing. That's awesome. Thomas, any questions from you? It, does HR yeah, tech yeah, need this stuff, I, Thomas? I do. I, I've got a, a massive question here. Well, I think it's a massive question. So, yeah, one of the things happened over the last, maybe the last three to five years is that that product managers are starting to buy tools, right? So, you know, the, the tools that product managers had before were kind of you you used a bit of the Jira that, that you hung out in Jira because that's where the engineers were hanging out and you hung out in PowerPoint and Excel because that's where sales and accounting hung out. But there wasn't really much in between. And it seems to me that the, the product management function as a consumer of software is really kind of exploded over the last over the last three or four years i look at the tools like you know uh product board and product pad and and um, you know i was looking at a startup the other day that does uh, a product discovery um uh, product discovery software and and it just seems like there's a an explosion of uh of tooling aimed at at serving the the, the product management uh, uh buying center which is which is a fascinating development Agree with you. Long, yeah, I, long underserved community. Go ahead, Andy. I was going to say, I, I agree. I think one of the balances we're trying to strike is I think a lot a lot of firms, and it's a, it's a good thing to be doing, are really trying to figure out how to digitize and quantify user behavior, um, you know, product activity. And that's great. Like we always say, we love data too. We use all these products at, at user testing as well. I think the thing we're trying to add into the mix is it's not a replacement for having intuition and really understanding your users, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, so we're trying to figure out a way to, to help product managers who, I, I can't imagine doing the job today compared to when I did it. When I look at what a product manager does today, the two things that amaze me is the speed with Agile, right? When I was at Oracle, we did a release every 18 months, right? You had 18 months to put your requirements together for what you're doing, fly all over the world, talk to customers, right? Talk to developers, talk to analysts. Now it's every two weeks, and so, like, even look at my PMs, it's hard to find time to go actually talk to customers and see what people are doing and then to respond quickly. So that part amazes me. The other is the speed at which the field interacts with product managers. The, the whole idea of being on Slack as a product manager and having every one of your sales reps feel like they have instantaneous access to you to ask any array of questions they have at any moment in time is also mind-blowing to me that our product managers survive in that world. Um, and so I think, you know, we're trying to figure out how do you – both give product managers more data, which is, again, where I think, you know, the Pendos, the Amplitude, the survey platforms are all doing that, and that's great. And we're trying to figure out, like, and how do you help them continue to have sort of intuition and perspective and empathy of what it's really like to be a user of the product, not just somebody who's, you know, mashing on the interface with their fingers? I love it. 
I, I personally love the balance of the kind of quantitative feedback with the, it sounds like really the more kind of qualitative and, and empathetic feedback of what it is to be a user using the product. So I think it's a, it's a perfect complement to some of those other categories. Um, so I guess the next question would be, uh, unless you had any other warm-up questions, Thomas, I want to switch over to the hiring framework. Did you uh, feel no, we are, we are warm one? now. We are very warm. We are warm? Okay. <laughs> so uh, when I invited you on the show, Andy, you said you wanted to talk about a framework for PM hiring and, and hiring and building PM teams. I, I'd love to understand what you mean by when well, you say that. And I guess we'll, Let's walk into this. What is the, what is the framework and, and why do I need one? Yeah, and it's, um, it's not super complicated, but I have found it to be very effective. Um, one of the things everyone talks about when you talk about product management is that it's, it's sort of a discipline, but it's not a discipline, right? I mean, you hear people talk about this at any product management conference. Like, nobody went to school to be a product manager. Nobody has their master's degree in product management. Like, it's, it's sort of a, a practice, but not a discipline in some ways. And I think one of the challenges that that holds when you're trying to build a PM team, when you're trying to hire a product manager, is like, what am I hiring for? And I hear all the time people talk about, like, what's the ideal product manager skill set? And I really think that's challenging. It's like saying, um, what's the ideal skill set for a musician? It's like, well, it sort of depends what I need in the band, right? I mean, it's great to be a drummer, but if I need a bass player, that doesn't really help me. And so the way I think about PM hiring and when I've built PM teams, I build a really simple um, two-axis framework. And I think this is where product managers tend to fit. One axis is uh, essentially are they engineering-centric or marketing-centric, right? We've all met product managers whose main joy in life is the daily stand-up and working with the engineers and spending their time in JIRA and understanding the technical problem. And again, from a product management lens, but they really like that part of the job. And we've all met product managers, I think I'd put myself in this category, who were borderline product marketers, right? What they really enjoyed was you know, the messaging and what, where the product was going to go. And so, again, you, every, every product manager in my mind does some of both of that, but they're definitely somewhere on that spectrum. And then the other axis that I sort of cross that with to make a two-by-two two is if they are focused on this release or five years from now. Because, again, we've all met product managers who, again, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm working on my detailed requirements for the next release, and I'm really focused on how I'm going to get this out the door. Um, what am I going to do? We've met other product managers where it's like, hey, I'm working on this product, but what it really needs is a public-facing API and a developer community. Like, that's not happening next release. And again, all product managers do a bit of all of this. But if you draw this on a piece of paper and then you talk to a product manager for 10 minutes, I've never been able to not plot them on that graph pretty clearly, pretty quickly. And there's no right or wrong answer. What I largely tell my team is you need a mix of these things. Like you can't have your whole team focused on marketing the vision five years from now if that's the quadrant they're in. You also can't have your entire product team, you know, just in the stand-up every day and, and really focused on, you know, this current release and, and you know, how that's going to ship. And so I think if you can sort of end up with a team that's sort of scatter plotted around that, and then be able to balance them across different needs in your product areas. So I also really enjoy more than most people moving product managers around different products. Um, you know, just kind of like, hey, you know, I know you're running this product for two years, but I need you to go run this product now. And often it's because, you know, they ran their product for a while and they were very focused on a longer term vision, sort of building out where it's going to go or whatever that might be. And we know that now, but now I need somebody who's really going to go in and drive that. But this other product has been really, you know, heads down on release to release, you know, installed based customers, whatever. And so I'll move people around based on those skill sets and sort of advance 
the product in different vectors, more based on that skill set than, you know, oh, a product manager should have a background in engineering and they should have an MBA with a marketing spin or whatever those things are. I, I think it's really that two by two that I have found to be my best tool for sorting where my PM teams go. So I love the framework. Um, I think, by the way, the, the quote about what's your ideal musician, it depends on who's already in the band, is, is absolutely true for PM as well as for building an executive team. So so if we have, because we have a lot of kind of founder CEOs in our audience, um, and that's, you know, what's your ideal VP of marketing? Well, it depends who else is in the band, right? Yes. Because <laughs> they come yes. in different flavors, right? What's the, so, so I love that. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I do some of the same kind of two-by-two analysis when I'm filling out the executive team, too, not by functional expertise, but just by, um, you know, a little bit by horizon and a little bit about how they how they problem solve, right? To your point, like, how do we, how do I end up with a group of executives where, you know, some are very operational, execution-focused, uh, risk management kind of people, and other people are, you know, where do we need to be in three years, Um you know, I, you can do this on any level of things when you start to think about building out a team, right? A, you don't want a team full of uh, glass half empty. You don't want a team full of glass half full. You want a group of people that can tell you, you know, a variety of different opinions and different perspectives and, and, and get to a good landing place. And so, you know, I have found frameworks like this to be really helpful. I, I think you're exactly right, Dave, on, on executive team hiring as well. Cool. Um, the other thing you said that I, that is interesting and potentially controversial is moving people around on products because some companies seem to put a very high value on like you know extremely long term in the space. Like especially if they're hiring a new PM and there's somebody who's from outside the space and somebody who spent ten years in the space, even if the other person might appear to have kind of more PM talent, whatever that is, they'll go, oh, we should hire the person from the space. So, so, and you said move people around products, which I assume will mean around spaces, particularly a big company like at Oracle. You could go from CMS to database to apps to financials, right? There's there's a lot of. I mean, you're moving across categories. In effect, um, I'd love you to expand a little bit more on that and, and how you think uh, about that. How, how much should should we weigh kind of PM talent versus depth or longevity in the space? Yeah, I think it goes to our point earlier about change management too, right? I, I think part of the job of running a company or running a product team is you are trying to inflict change, right? If you weren't, you would just send everybody home and, and be done with it, right? So you're trying to, to iterate and, and come up with innovative and new things to go do. And so I think part of that is new perspectives that people bring. So again, a little bit like my two-by-two two example, I'm not sure I would want to run you know a database product line and have an entire team of folks who have never worked in the database space, like that's probably at face value a bad idea. But I'm also not sure I'd want a team of folks where all of them spent the last 20 years only at one company, only building one kind of database, only with one kind of field. I think that's sort of asking for trouble. And so um, I, I give you an example, like when Queener hired me to come into Salesforce, uh, it was to do a little bit of a, a product turnaround on a product line called data.com. And one of the things that Brett was excited about when hiring me was I had never worked in the data industry. Like I, I just had never set foot in that area. But he had people around the product that had, and his sense was, I'm not trying to replicate what's been done in the data industry before. I'm trying to do something very different. And so that was sort of the hiring mindset he had. I think you can do the same thing when you're moving people around. Again, if I was to think of my PM team, and the example I was using earlier, if maybe one product has been sort of iterating on the installed base, you know, polishing the corners of the product, making it really easy to use, all, all, all great stuff. But at some point, you go, boy, like I really need a plan to advance the ball downfield for the next three years. 
that may not be from somebody who's worked in that space directly for the last 10 years. It might be getting somebody from an outside perspective who could come in and look at the problem. Again, assuming they're going to be working with an engineering manager who's been in the space for 10 years and maybe a designer who's been designing that product for the last three years. So I'm not saying you throw out all the domain knowledge, you throw out all the product knowledge. I'm not saying you don't value the team that's already been working on it. But product managers can be a change agent if you do it right. I mean, that's sort of the power of the role if you get it right. They can sort of align people on new perspectives and, and, and new ideas and, and you know, new customer perspectives, new market problems to go after. And sometimes that comes from somebody who's coming at it fresh. Yeah, agree, agree. I mean, again, it's all back to the mix um, because I've been on both sides of this. When I was at Business Objects, I was there nearly a decade, and towards the end, people would join, and, and they would literally say, like, we can't keep up with the conversation because there's a group of you who've been at the company 10 years, um, and, and because you just get so much depth and, and history, and they're like, who worked where, and which company bought who, and who did we look at buying five years ago? And, and when I joined Salesforce, I had that exact same feeling. I'm like, oh, now I know what that feels like because I, <laughs> I don't know anything about customer service, and I work with the guys like Brett Queter, who been at Siebel and Salesforce forever, and I'm like, oh, my God. Um, so it was interesting to be on both sides of it. But I agree with you. Ultimately, it's good to have some fresh eyes in the mix. I respect both, right? I respect the deep expertise in the space, that institutional memory. But, but the, in my opinion, the number one job occupational hazard of product management is incrementalism, right? You just can fall into the chief to-do list keeper and be kind of incrementally polishing and improving the product. And, and that can happen if you stay doing the same thing too long. Yeah, and I, I think it really goes to this band analogy, right? I mean, if you if you just hired a world-class engineering manager who's coming in, but you hired them from outside the industry because, I don't know, maybe you're focused on building a an API framework for your industry-centric thing, and this person built a giant API framework at somewhere else, right? Then maybe your product manager should have a ton of domain expertise in the thing that you're building, right? Yeah. Um, but if you've got the same engineering manager that's been building the product for the past three or four years, who knows it like the back of their hand and has been building those incremental improvements, has been talking to customers, you know, kind of does a lot of that, you know, you, you create the opportunity to bring in somebody who partners with them that complements them with other experience. And so I think that really goes to this team building mindset versus role hiring mindset that I see a lot of folks kind of miss one role i'd like to ask you about this is a unofficial curveball question or official curveball because it's unofficial it wasn't in the blog um what do you think the role of the architect is and like in my belief at salesforce we had a great architect in, in my area Stephen tam and he was a great in my mind counterbalance devil's advocate keep everybody honest to the pm team i liked him i don't know if all the pms did um but but what's your take have you built architects at your company as a kind of balancing role to pms and kind of yes or no why and just how do you think about that issue yeah and i thought steve was amazing uh but i think part of what made him amazing was He's very pragmatic and was problem solving and bringing to bear the reality of the tech, but in a let me solve the problem with you way. And I think that is a little unusual, to be honest. I don't, I don't want to bash on architects, but you know, if I was drawing a little two by two of them, there's definitely an ivory tower religion world of architects that I've never seen be particularly helpful. Yeah. Um, and the fear I always have with architects is I always tell product managers, if you hear your engineering team start talking about building a framework for something, you know, your ears should perk up and make sure that you're not building, you know, a new development environment where from there you will then start to build products. Um, yeah. You know, because I've very rarely been part of an engineering team that built a framework before building solutions that then went back and said, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad we built that framework. We saved so much time. <laughs> right. So I think that's your risk with architects if you're not careful. 
Um, but I think if you end up with somebody who you can really partner with you on the, you know, the, the pragmatism of you're operating with a set of code. It does some things well. It doesn't do other things well. It's really extensible in some areas and not in other areas. And sometimes if, if an architect is really good like, like, like Stephen Tam, it'll be, hey, you know, I thought about what you were talking about and it doesn't feel very extensible over there. However, like, I think we could solve the problem by doing this and this and this, and that would open up these other things. And he sort of becomes this great partner for solving problems within the construct of the technology. I think that's pretty amazing. But I, I, unfortunately, I feel like that's more the exception than the rule. Agree. I mean, I think you think you're you're correct. I am kind of sample biasing towards the architects I like, uh, which, which are invariably pragmatic. Uh, but there can definitely be. I mean, look, I've seen for every one pragmatic architect, I've probably seen four ivory tower <laughs> architects. So, so I think you're right that there's there's issues there. The the other thing I'd say that I liked about Stephen and in and, and that role of architect, and, and this is funny, I, in my own career, I kind of wish for something, and then I get it in my next job, and then I un, unwish for it. <laughs> it's happened to me many times. <laughs> so so I was like, well, I want to go to a company that just wants to bang out software. I didn't wish for not having architects, but after I left, I joined a company that had six different uh, export to Excel uh, utilities in one product. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, this is what happens when you don't have architects, right? <laughs> if there's not somebody yes. there <laughs> being that almost cop, I don't know what to call it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Super. Thomas, you want to weigh in on this before we uh, switch gears again? I do. I, I don't want to I don't want to churn over the architect uh, discussion because I think we'll be we'll be here all day, but um, going back to the going back to the product management uh, uh, skill set. Um, there's one thing that I've looked for in, in product managers above, you know, technical con- competence or even management skills or industry knowledge, and that it's one word and it's curiosity. You know, um, if if a product manager is curious and you know willing to learn and and thrives on learning new things every day, um, they're going to get over most of the. You know most of the challenges, whether whether it's domain knowledge challenge or whether it's a whether it's a, a tech stack challenge. If they have that that um, that um, that trait of, of curiosity, um, it's a hard thing to evaluate when you don't know people, though. Um, uh, so maybe your thoughts on the on the importance of curiosity as a as a as a requirement is is one we could discuss. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I would say there are definitely across that whole matrix some things that I look for, right? So while I'm putting people in a little bit of a like, hey, where do they lean as I'm building out a team? I do think all great product managers, I agree, are very curious, are interested in the problem, interested in understanding the problem in more detail, like interested in the offshoots of the problem. Like you have to find that to be um, at its base interesting. And I think there are ways to ask about that, you know, when, when you're interviewing folks and talking about like, what problem were you trying to solve there? And then listen to how they talk about it. Like, are they, are they interested in the problem or do they kind of, you know, talk down at the people they were fixing the problem for, right? Never hire a PM who's like, oh yeah, like, well, the users were too stupid to figure this out. And this was awful. And my sales team didn't get this. It's like, that's not interested in the problem, right? That's not intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. That's condescension. So I think there's a way to, to dig at that. And then the other thing I focus on, if we're just kind of looking at a skills basis, is I also look at um, how they rally people to a vision and to action. Uh, you know, you hear PM uh, 
conferences and stuff all the time talk about in a nutshell, it's a job where you're responsible for everything, but in charge of no one, right? I mean, you sort of have to get everybody on board with a vision and get engineering to build it and marketing to market it and sales to sell it and all these things. And so um, the way I filter for that is my favorite interview question is to ask people when, give me an instance of where you've been wildly successful while significantly under-resourced. And what that really comes down to is were you able to, one, be creative and two, rally people to support what you're doing, right? So, you know, you built a product that um, wasn't heavily resourced. You were creative about how you solved the need of the users. You got sales interested in the solution. You hooked into a marketing campaign the company was already running, right? And all of a sudden, word got out. Sales was interested. You had product that had product market fit and lots of people did something interesting with it. But that wasn't because to our point earlier, you know, Mark Benioff put half the company on your product. That's, that's hard to do too. There's a lot of pressure when Mark says, go build this. And half the company now is, is on a mission to go build this thing with you. But if I really want to find a PM who can rally folks to a vision, sort of make things happen, again, thinking them as a change agent, hearing them tell about when they've done that, when they were under-resourced, when they weren't on the chatter team at Salesforce at the time, they were on the service cloud team, but they launched this new, you know, case feed or whatever it was. And, you know, sort of had to get everybody to go like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, yeah, I can include this here. I can put this here. I can, I'll put that in the sales training and then, you know, then sales shoot up. Like that's the product manager I really want to hire. So I love that question. And uh, one of my favorite stories, and this might be slightly distorted through the years of history, but, but as far as I know, the whole social enterprise vision at Salesforce all started with a 60K like Bulgarian outsourced Twitter connector for service cloud. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just a fantastic story. Like somebody's like, we got to get a connector to Twitter. Like we had no devs to do it and they outsourced it. And all of a sudden you've got the genesis of this. Hey, wait a minute. We just connected social media to a call center application. Like what could you do with that? Uh, and then Domino started falling and eventually the case feed happened. Another great example. So, so I, I love that question. Um, the, the just you know, tell me about a time you've been wildly successful when you've been under resourced. It's a great question. Yeah, because it counterbalances the um, you know I was wildly successful because I was part of Salesforce's F- SFA product for eight years when it went from zero to ten billion. It's like, well, yeah, lots of people were part of that. Like that's not super indicative of of you know what happened there. Um, and it also biases you away from to use your example, Dave. I mean, there may have been people running around writing documents about how we should connect the service model and the call center model to social, right? Um, But that's different than people that go out and say, hey, I figured out a way to get the feed to pop into the app. And we start talking to customers about it and showing people stuff and iterating. And I have a strong bias towards that second group of people versus the arm waivers. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of people that have actually pretty fairly successful careers in product management that I feel like are kind of arm waivers and you got to be careful. And again, you could have one on the team. You, you can't have 10, right? If you've got a product management team of 10 people and they're all arm waivers, good luck. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. That's uh, uh, another fantastic nugget there. Um, you touched on another topic in that answer. Um, which is basically what do you think many companies kind of encourage PMs to think like mini CEOs or like you are a GM or they like bigger companies like Salesforce actually have GMs. What's your take on that issue? To what extent should PMs think of themselves as mini CEOs or, or are they really just one person trying to get an enormous amount of stuff done, right? With lots of responsibility and no authority. Cause, cause <laughs> mini CEO is kind of different from that. I would argue, but uh, I'd love your thoughts. I think it's a, uh, a reasonable but flawed analogy. 
Um, it's not a terrible mindset for some activities of product management, right? To really, from like an ownership perspective, like you can't go around blaming sales or blaming marketing. Like you sort of have to own the overall outcome of the product. And I think that's a good CEO mindset. I think the flip side is you have none of the actual power of being a CEO. Uh, I, you know, I think you can really lose perspective if you think the sales team is going to go sell your product because you went to the sales meeting and told them they need to go sell the product and you're the product CEO. It's like, well, but they don't work for you. Right. And yeah, so that, that barely works for the real CEO. Exactly. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, I, I completely agree. I think the inverse is actually true. I think yeah. one of the reasons PM is a really good precursor to the CEO job is if you can learn to motivate people because they want to go do it, not because they work for you. And then one day they do work for you and you can still lead with aligning people on the vision and, and having them want to participate in doing what you're doing. It's really powerful. But I, you know, I don't think you go, oh, thank goodness I'm CEO now. I don't have to do that anymore. I just pound on the table with my shoe and tell everybody to go do it. Like that's a, that's a miss, right? So I, I, so I think it's an okay framework. I think it's a good mindset from an ownership perspective. I don't think it's a good mindset in terms of how you should lead. I think you have to lead as a PM and you're often, I mean, PM's great because a lot of folks can do that job very early in their career. I mean, I was a, I was a VP of product management at Oracle. I think I was 27 when we were acquired. So, you know, you're in your late twenties, you're getting up in front of a sales team of people that have made, you know, been doing million dollar deals at Oracle for 15 years. Why are they going to listen to you? It's not going to be because you say on your business card that you're like the CEO of the product and they have to listen to you. You better have a very clearly articulated strategy. You better be able to be compelling and interesting and be willing to go partner with them on deals and make things happen and sort of participate in their success. So I, it's flawed, but I think it's, it's it, you know, I, I don't correct people when they say it's like being the CEO of, uh, of the product. It's like, well, yeah, it's a good ownership mindset, but it's probably not the leadership mindset. Yeah, I, I like that as well. Because I agree with you. I think there's some good to be had from it. You should think like a business person. Think about the overall business. Don't get featureitis. Right, uh, be responsible for everything, um, but but I agree with you. It, it's it's a big difference. Uh, I remember when I, when I joined Salesforce, I'd been a CEO prior, and they, like this, if somebody asked me the biggest difference between being a cloud CEO and being a real CEO, it's like people answer your phone calls. You know that was <laughs> like when you're CEO of a company, you call somebody, they actually answer. Yeah, <laughs> they got the Salesforce. I'm like shit. No one ever answers when I call. Um, so uh, it, it's hard. I mean, it's just a very different job. A, the one advantage of being CEO is answer, you'll usually answer the phone when you call. But, but other than that, yeah, you may as well be a PM uh, in terms of trying to get particularly enterprise software people to do something. I mean, you have to convince them regardless of what it says on your business card. That's right. Um, <laughs> uh, Thomas, do you have – I'm, I'm going to pull us in CEO direction again. Do you, do you want to pull us back to the product direction? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think we've, we've talked a lot on this call about the uh, – Building the the synergies and and respect and cohesion with with the sales function, which I think is important. You know, we've mentioned examples of oracles. Let's shift and talk a little bit about the the um, engineering uh, engineering side of the fence. As a PM, I actually find you know working with sales the easier part of the job than working within working with uh, uh, with uh, with with engineering. Um, you you need to convince them as well. Um, uh, you can't cajole in the same way as you can't force uh, sales to build uh, uh, to sell what you want. Um, you often ha- you can't always force engineering to build what you want. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think it's an area where I think a lot of PMs over-index on um, 
I, I hate going to those meetings where it's like, who's going to own the decision? You know, we'll build a racy model for between PM and design and engineering and who gets to decide what and all those things. I think the problem in all those meetings and that mindset is I find engineers are inherently curious about the problem. It's sort of in the nature of being an engineer. Uh, they want to understand why we're building something and what is the user actually trying to do and what's behind this requirement. And um, and so I, I think the more you think about it being a, a, a team of folks trying to solve a problem together, and as the product manager, your job is to go out and talk to a lot of customers and build a perspective, but you're kind of partnering with engineering along the way mm-hmm. versus – uh, and again, it was almost worse in, in, you know, quote unquote, olden times when we shipped every 18 months, because you'd get on airplanes and fly all over the world and go talk to lots of customers. Then you'd have a meeting with engineering where you would give them the document of like, here's all the things I found and you should go build this. And they'd be like, what are we talking about? Um, so I think, you know, it is an area where I think PMs would do better to have more um, sort of empathy and appreciation for how hard the technology can be and, and how engineers, I, th- I kind of view engineers more as craftsmen. Right, they're they're proud of what they build. They want to show people what they built. They want it to be successful in the market, but they want to know why they're building it. They want to they want to have a a seat at the table in those conversations. And so, um, I think that's changing a little bit with agile. I think maybe sometimes to the detriment of PM. I think sometimes PMs become project managers in agile, and it sort of mm-hmm. feels like engineering's only running the show. And so, I think getting that balance right is important. But I think for me, when I see it go really wrong, it's a respect problem. You know, PMs mm-hmm. say, oh, they don't respect me. They don't think I'm technical. So now I'm going to explain to them how technical I am. And it's like, okay, this is not going to go well. Um, you know, they don't know the customers. I'm talking to the customers. And now I've built a racy model. And here's the things they decide. And I will give them the requirements. And they will tell me how they're going to implement it. And it's like, I think ultimately we all kind of care why we're building it. As a PM, I always cared how we were building it. Right? That mattered to me. Like, what do you, how are you guys going to build this thing? Like, what, what's, what's going to happen? Tell me. Like, what's the plan here? Right? I, I, I have opinions mm-hmm. and thoughts, but I'll, you know. So I, I think like a lot of things in, uh, in business, there's a desire for people to want to put it into boxes and charts and rules and racy models and who decides. And I find the best functioning teams are ones that sort of inherently want to work together and share some responsibility and share perspective and you know, I always tell the team, when you talk about these decision frameworks, you mean to tell me that if the PM wants to do something and it's in their racing model that they decide, but engineering and design think it's a bad idea, we should do it anyways because the PM decides? Like, I, I feel like that's more like I'm a Detroiter and they used to have those commercials for Saturn where anyone on the line could pull the quality lever and the whole line would stop and they would fix the quality problem. I sort of feel like to me that's any decision where PM design and engineering can't can't align like can't get to a place of like okay like i you know we'll, we'll do it your way i'm on board that should be like a pull the emergency line moment and everybody should go okay let's pause you know go get a beer and figure out like why are we not aligning here before we start building stuff and i see a lot of teams just don't seem to get that it's called the and on cord i often use that as a big metaphor the cord that went down the middle of the factory where anyone could stop the line um i think it's a it's fun, funny a lot of People don't use that anymore, but I, I still do, and I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and I just again, it just goes back to kind of a mutual respect, right? I mean, trying to prove to the engineering team that you're technical, even if you are. Like I'm, I was technical. I was if I was so good at being technical, I still would have been writing code. I wrote terrible code. Like I should like I should listen to my engineering team, right? Um, one of the features, just to you know, talk about user testing for half a second. One of the features we just released was the ability to take highlight reels from our product and post them with a JIRA ticket so the engineering team can see the same videos when they're working on the ticket. Like, this is why we're doing this, right? I think it's the kind of thing that helps align the whole team building the product. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, like, this is what we're doing. 
So I, I think that's the secret. Um, it's it's unfortunately not overly prescriptive. It's more of a behavioral model than a than a framework. But mm-hmm. um, I've yet to find a really good racing model where everybody goes, "Oh yeah, okay, we've divided up the decisions and we're going to build a product together." Mm. Got it. Um, you talked. Well, there's just one comment on the whole curiosity thing. I mean, interestingly enough, Thomas, you brought that up, I think. My favorite sales methodology is called selling through curiosity. Um, and I think the guy named it that after he was teaching it to a, a group that included uh, some marketing folks at, at Business Objects. And one of my guys went up to him and said, this is basically curiosity testing, uh, curiosity training. Like you're training people to be curious. And he's like, oh, yeah, I am. Uh, and so I think he may have inadvertently named that methodology. Um, but uh, so important in sales and obviously in PM as well. So, so it's just something I wanted to touch on from the past. The other thing I want to flip over to Andy is um, – well, actually, let me, do, let me go to Thomas. Do you have one more question? Because I, I want to ask with uh, inflicting change. He talked about that earlier, and I want to come back to that. But if you have a follow-up question on working with engineering, let me let – No, no, no. Let's, 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 let's go with the flow, Dave. I'm, I'm all ears. Okay. So uh, let's, let's go to inflicting change then because – because you talked about it. I thought it was a great uh, expression. The question is, I mean, here's the question, and this is going to be a hard one. Do you do it at user testing, right? Because it's, it's one, like, I tell people to do it all the time, but I'm not a CEO anymore. <laughs> and, and I tell them to do it to avoid stasis, right? Because stasis is a real enemy, right? Uh, you keep doing the same thing for too long, to, to, to quote Churchill, as you did. <laughs> Tongue in cheek there. Um, but the question is, do you do it, and, and how, um, because I think it's just so important because it, it's almost uh, arteries or they harden, right? You know, and, and I know you believe it's important. And the question is, do you do it and, and how do you do it? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I don't do it as well as I'd like. Um, I think it's one of the areas I continue to work on because you do just find yourself getting into all this, all there is to do, right? You're on sales forecast calls and pipeline meetings. And I mean, there's lots to do. And, you know, we're a good example of like, things are going really well right now. So it's tough to sort of sit back and go, all right, like, what do I want to change right now? Um, But I do do it. Uh, I'll give you an example. Right now, I've got an area of the product I'd like to see us really invest more in and really think outside of our current use case set. And so for me, it started off with, um, you know, I have one member of my staff who is sort of our industry expert. We call her our chief insights officer because we're in the human insights business. I spent some time with her sort of get my thinking down. Um, and then I wrote a, a, a Google Doc. It's like five or six pages long of like, what am I thinking about here? But what I do then is I try to get some key stakeholders involved with me. So I've got a product leader I've now invited into the document yesterday morning. I've got a design leader I've pulled in. I've got my CTO in the document. I just sent it to my CMO. They're all commenting in the document. My goal is to have some shared ownership before we really roll this out more broadly and sort of sanity check. Like, yeah, is this, is this an area we want to really lean into? But my hope is by the time we really lean into it, that product manager feels a bunch of ownership. I got a design leader who's got a vision for where this is kind of going. So it's not, you know, hey, we went to this meeting with Andy and he pounded on the table a bunch and said, go change something. And we're all like, hey, that was out of left field. And we got a whole bunch of stuff to go do. And, you know, we're a high growth pre-public tech company. Like, I, I don't think I've got anybody just sitting around all day waiting for something to to do, right? Hey, I wish Andy would come up with a crazy idea I could go work on. Otherwise, I'm just going to sit here and play solitaire at my desk. It's probably not what I have going on around the company. So we're going to be causing people to shift priorities, causing people to go through change, um, having stakeholders on board and people who have who've kind of shared that vision with me, I think is part of the, it's almost like preheating the oven before we, before we jump into it. And so um, that's the process I kind of follow. I, I think it's tough 
as a CEO to try to do that on your own, it can start to feel very ivory tower, you know, strategy of the week kind of thing. So I try to take the time to sort of, um, you know, find some co-conspirators with me, if you will, and, uh, and then go from there. And so that's, that's what I'm doing right now. That's awesome. I think um, just my, my two cents to answer my own question is um, I think some best practices are one kind of leveraging strategic goals and OKRs to try and drive change. Also leveraging organizational change, move people around, give people different jobs, ask people to do stuff. I think again, Salesforce did that well. And I just think, uh, I just think that's how you avoid this stasis is you don't want everyone doing the same thing. Cause at one level, some free advice, I think the biggest risk, cause you guys are on the perfect track, right? hundred million plus in ARR. I mean, the, if you're not careful, there could be a, Hey, let's not screw this thing up until there's an IPO. And in my mind that that's great short term, but it would not be good longer term. Right. So I, I, I hope, and I'm sure you will do your best to say, let's build a great business, right? Let's go change the world. Let's change the market. Cause I know there'll, there'll probably be a lot of pressure to say, Hey, let's get this thing public, which my, my favorite metaphor everyone has theirs, but I always call an IPO a high school graduation because that's what, that's what I think it is, right? It's an important milestone, um, but it's a relatively early milestone uh, in, in the building of a company. Even now that you know companies are five times bigger than they used to be to go public, it's, it's still pretty early in your evolution. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the idea that um, you know aligning metrics and goals, I, I completely agree with those things. I think org change is a, is a great example too. It, it sort of demonstrates commitment, right? It's not a side project. It's like, hey, like, you know, a hundred people are now organized around this idea, and we're yeah. and we're doing it. So I think that's right. I also think there's an element of just, <clears throat> you know, early on pressure testing the idea, talking to some customers. I mean, for this idea that I'm looking at now, like I've literally used user testing, some feedback on it from some customers, and and I've talked to some other customers. And my hope is by time we sort of, if you will, roll the idea out, it should feel, again, like how I felt about user testing. It should feel a little bit obvious in retrospect. Right. I want most of the company, if not all the company, to go, yeah, like that would be awesome. Like I'm 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 excited and interested. Back to kind of the PM skill set. I don't want them to do it because I'm the CEO and I told them, hey, we're all gonna make a, a left turn here at the fork in the road and, and go do this. I want, you know, my company full of people to go, that's yeah, like that's where we should go. I'm I'm excited for that. I want to be on board with that. And there's some product leaders that are already talking about it. And I saw the designs and I'm excited. And the CTO says, we're going to be able to go do it. And the CMO is excited about it. I'm in, you know, and Hey, it's great. The CEO is driving it and we've reorganized people around it and there's metrics and you know, all that other stuff, but doing it in the opposite order, you know, Hey, the CEO reorganized everybody. I'm not really sure this makes a ton of sense. I haven't really heard what we're doing, <laughs> um, but he's the CEO. So he gets to do that is a tough way organizations to go through change one just additional thought for me on that is um, i think there's a difference between saying we're going to do this new thing and i'm highly committed to it uh, and saying this new thing is the future of the company which is one of my pet peeves i, I think that's overreach because because we don't know if it actually we don't know if it's going to be the future of the company it might be it might not be by the way it might land in that vast middle where it's a good idea that we're all happy that we did it but it's not the future of the company it could land to the left of that which is a good idea that made some good marketing and thought leadership for example social enterprise that never really in my opinion converted into you know chatter sales <laughs> but still nonetheless a really good idea at keeping the company at the forefront so to me there's just so much middle ground between let's just keep iterating on the core thing and let's tell everyone the future you know the company is dead long live the future of the company uh, I, I personally love all that ground in the middle because uh, that's where I think you usually land. And, and by the way, I, as I mentioned, I even think sometimes just for the pure 
marketing of it, right? Just to show that your company is a thought leader, to position yourself as somebody on the cutting edge, not everything has to work. I think that's right. And I think you, you make a good example uh, with social enterprise of where, you know, I think sometimes the iconic leaders are the exceptions, not the rule. And I think a lot of people get that wrong, especially early in their careers, right? Not everybody – I remember like when the Steve Jobs book came out and everybody was a jerk to everybody else for six months. It's like, okay, well, maybe this doesn't really work for everybody, but it works for Steve Jobs, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I remember telling folks on my product management team when I first joined Data.com, like, you're not all Brett Queener, right? Like, let's just be clear. Like, this works for Brett because he's one of the smartest people I've ever met, but it doesn't work for all of you, right? So, you know, you got to find your own leadership style. I think what works for Mark so well is he's such a visionary, and you know there's going to be this kind of endless – set of next giant things the company's going to go do that doesn't work if you're in your first ceo job trying to make the first big transition in a company you're not you're not operating off that platform right you to your point you need to go hey i think this is really important here's why we're going to go do this but do it with credibility right do it with a way that if it doesn't end up being game changing for the company but it was good that you can go yeah i'm glad we did that and so I, i think that's an error a lot of folks make early in their careers around leadership is trying to emulate iconic leaders without the the history. So right. yeah, maybe, the maybe a point to, to jump in for a second. I think one of the problems that, that I've had, you know, reporting into, you know, reporting into heads of product and leaders and so on is, is understanding the difference between conviction and conjecture, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, that leader may, may idly have an idea, right? And there are five people sitting in the room and they hear this idea and it's, delivered with, with a certain amount of, of uh, uh, excitement and vigor and so on. So everyone thinks, oh, shit, we've got to go and do that, right? It's entirely the opposite of what he told us three weeks ago, but, you know, the CEO said we've got to go and do that, right? So they all charge off going off to do that thing. And meanwhile, that leader was actually just thinking out loud, you know, just having an idea, you know, conjecture, like maybe we should do that. And the people working for them often don't hear the maybe, right? So my advice to product leaders and to CEOs is, is when it's something that you're convicted about, make it very clear that this is conviction and this is something that we are going to do. But when you're just having an idea, make it very clear that this is an idea and it's not an order. It's not the new direction of the company. It's, it's a thought that I've had. And I think... So often, uh, uh, software companies go wrong when, when, when it is that, when the thought gets taken and cre- gets a momentum of its own, when actually it wasn't actually the plan. It was just, and you go back and you look at it and you think, when did we actually decide that? You know, we've suddenly got 30 people working on this thing and we never actually had a plan for this. So I think sometimes it goes, it goes, it goes, wrong, the, um, it goes wrong the other way. I think that's a great point, and I think one that folks need to be really thoughtful about, and also have people around you that are sort of checking you on that. I mean, I, I did this two days ago. I was in a meeting with my marketing team, and I was all excited about this idea. And I was sort of spitballing with them. They'd brought me some market data, so it sort of yeah. like led me into this area, and I started going, and I was way off, and I was being very call it provocative about like how we should go solve this problem. And my CMO, who I've worked with now for I don't know, 15 years at five different companies. So she knows me really well. She literally said, I had to slack the whole team and say, he's just spitballing. Nobody go do anything. And then she called me afterwards. She's like, what are you doing to me here? Like, yeah, these guys, everybody's busy yeah. doing stuff. And I'm like, okay, so, you're right. So, 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 um, so on this, Andy, I have, I have a little weapon that I try and encourage people to use for this. Um, it's called the negative roadmap, right? 
And it's, it's when you actually sit down and you write down as a management team what the things are you're not going to do, right? It's especially useful as, you, as, you, as you're growing because you have these brainstorming innovation sessions where people have lots of ideas. And at some point, you've got a capacity issue, right? You have to decide between product management is essentially it's a constraints exercise, right? You have infinite ideas and you have finite capacity. And, and so yeah, when you have these great ideas, it's like, okay, boys and girls, what are we going to stop doing? Right? And just that moment of saying, what are you going to stop doing, right, makes you like reset and think, okay, is this new idea, you know, um, that good an idea that we need to stop doing something else? You know, or are we going to find more capacity or are we going to get more, uh, are we going to get more organized? But somewhere something's going to give. And, and, and um, one of the things that scares me is uh, a CEO with lots of ideas and no understandings of constraint because then they make the product manager's life, uh, then they make the project's life hell because they keep coming up with these new ideas without bringing the capacity to, to uh, support the ideas. So one of the things that... Vane, Andy, go ahead, quick comment, but one of the things we need to stop doing is recording this podcast because we're at 902, but Andy, quick thought from you. <laughs> As you can say, I love that idea. I think it's a great point, and I think having uh, folks around you that can tell you when you're off track on that, but also documenting things you're not doing, I, I think that's a great point. Awesome. Hey, everybody, we're, we're past time. Great session. Andy, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Did you have any final comment you wanted to share? I just want to say I really enjoyed it. I think um, I'm passionate about the area of, of product management and, and kind of how we build compelling products. So it was fun to come talk about it with you guys. Hey, it was great awesome. to have you on the show. And, and, and folks, next time we'd really, really like some questions. I was watching carefully, but no one put up their hand. So next time, please, folks, could you put up a hand? In the meantime, for Andy, we're going to give you the, the customary, if I press the right button here, the applause. Yay. And we'll bring Woo. the show to uh, we'll bring shows in. Thanks, Andy, and thanks, Dave. And I'll post this up in the next couple of hours with a bit of luck. All right, talk soon. Awesome. Thank you, everybody.